Bookstew viewers. So uh, if you've been with me for a while and I'm into my sixth year of this show at this point, you know that I've dragged on my mother, my daughter, uh, assorted wonderful writers that I've met along the way. And now for the first time, I'm bringing uh, to you an old classmate of mine going back to East Elementary School in Long Beach, New York. His name is Ben Berkeley, and he's an attorney and a writer, and we literally have not spoken to each other, well, since our 40th high school reunion, uh, we haven't spoken to each other, but I don't think we got to really catch up then, so I'm going to catch up with Ben, and he's going to tell you about what it's like to be an attorney and a writer, and we'll ask him which one he likes to be called first. So, Ben, welcome to Bookstew. I'm so happy to see you. So nice to see you, Eileen, after so many years. So, Ben, I would guess if anyone uh, described us, they would consider us both to be kind of um, book nerds, uh, which we probably were starting out in elementary school when we probably competed for the title of read most books in the first grade or something like that. That, that sounds about right. I was not one to go after the sports and the athletics. I love to read. I love to be in the shows and perform. I guess it was my creative brain that takes part uh, that I pursued, and I still enjoy it today. So um, when we first made contact about writing, I was amazed to see that you had written uh, two novels, but also some nonfiction books. But let's go back to uh, when you got out of high school, how your path started towards becoming an attorney and a writer. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, from high school back in 1970, so long ago, I went to Adelphi University on Long Island and I majored in speech communications, but never really wanted to do that. I always had my sights on going to law school. And then in 1974, married my high school sweetheart, Phyllis, who was two years younger than me, and we moved out to California, and I started uh, law school and been practicing, still haven't gotten it right, practicing law for 45 <laughs> plus years. And, and then uh, 2012, I got the writing bug. I always wanted to write, but I really, really put pen to paper and wrote my first nonfiction book. And the fiction books were, nonfiction books were all about law because I want to write something for the consumer, making it easy for them to understand the law. And I wrote four books, and then I said, you know what, let's see if I can do something fiction-wise, and that's how my first novel came to be. Well, let's go to the nonfiction first. So um, as an avid reader, when you were in college, in high school, in law school, what, who were your favorite authors, and what did you like to read? I liked to read more nonfiction than fiction. I love news, current events, uh, anything that was happening. I just found that more interesting. Time Magazine, U.S. News and World Report, Newsweek, um, of course, Life Magazine. And I am very proud to admit I love People Magazine. I would subscribe to People, always enjoyed reading People. Um, as far as authors, of course, you know, the the legal thrillers, the, the Grishams, the Toros, I like that. But probably my favorite author of all time is uh, Nora Ephron. I thought she was just amazing because I love the family story she would tell. And so then you must love humor writing as well because if there was anything she was, it was just 
she could always get a smile or a chuckle or an or an, uh, just a big laugh out of you taking you know situations that could be painful for other people like in her book heartburn about the the destruction of her marriage and just making the situation absurd situations so um, so readable and making herself such a sympathetic character. Right. And also in the Woody Allen genre, you know, it's and, and it's it's those stories that we all relate to. You know, it's the true stories. You can't make up this stuff. I mean, when my kids tell me something, I they always say to me, Papa, my grandkids call me Papa, you're the greatest storyteller. And that's what I like to do. I like to take something that happened. Of course, I'm going to embellish it make it funnier and, you know, meaningful. And, you know, they remember things like that. I love to tell stories. So in your legal career, um, I, let, let's talk about your nonfiction books because they seem like um, very helpful books for people who find themselves in difficult legal situations. So um, why don't you take us book by book and tell us a little bit about the highlights of each one? Well, my first uh, nonfiction book was called uh, My Wishes, A Planning Guide for the Inevitable. Not a very pleasant thought, but no one, none of us are here forever. And I wrote that book after my uncle in Las Vegas passed on. He was married, uh, no children, and um, I was his trustee. And it was sad because he had amassed a very nice estate but just didn't have anything in place for when that time came. And uh, the book was written because people need to have a plan in place, a blueprint, so that, God forbid, there is a tragedy, something's in place tomorrow. You don't want to put all this emotional and legal burden on your children. So that was my first book, My Wishes. And that made sense to then write a book about handling your estate. So I wrote the book, uh, The Executive's Guide. And uh, since I also practice social security disability law, a lot of people are disabled, they can't go back to work, though the government denies them and says they can be in the Olympics, yeah. I decided to write a book about uh, how to win your social security disability case. So many people in this country are struggling with all kinds of physical and mental ailments, and uh, the process is so, so difficult. In fact, just last week, I actually received a letter from social security from my client that says, though you are on the transplant list for a new heart, we feel you can return to work while you wait for a new heart. I mean, actually, almost verbatim, I'm telling you what this letter said. Seriously? And that's what so, so what would your, what, what is your advice to that client? Can you fight City well, Hall? Can you fight Social yes, Security? We, we retain that client, and we're going to put all the medical evidence together and have a hearing before a judge and get him Social Security disability benefits. So that's why I wrote that book. And my, my favorite nonfiction book is um, Before You Say Again, Before You Say I Do Again, A Buyer's Beware Guide to Remarriage. Now, living in California, one out of two marriages end in divorce. And um, everyone's always asking for advice because we've done a lot of family law over the years. And there's a lot of things you need to consider. It's like buying a secondhand car, buying anything. Before you walk down that aisle again, you need to say, Buyers beware before you say I do again, all the questions you need to ask. And that book was very, very popular and really resonated because it's a big market for people who are looking for Mr. Right, but too, too often they find Mr. Right now who's not Mr. Right. Ah, so give us some, the social security example was very, it was very startling and sad. 
give us um, some wisdom for, uh, or maybe an anecdote or two of someone who was remarrying and could have benefited from your advice. For Social Security or for the uh, Buyer's Beware Let's Guide? Let's do Buyer's, the, the uh, Guide to Remarrying first. Okay. So many times when you uh, get divorced and then you meet someone, there's there's social pressure to get married again. I mean, we live in a society where it's two for dinner. You go on a cruise, it's based on double occupancy. You go to the movies, you don't want to sit by yourself. And there's a rush to get the invitations and order the flowers and have the dinner. It doesn't mean that you need to rush down the aisle. Uh, you need to take a look and check off the boxes before you remarry, such as is the person marrying have a lot of debt that you may indirectly inherit? Is there problems with the person's children? Do they accept you or not accept you? Uh, I always say, what are the health issues? I mean, as we get older, it's unfortunate, but you know, as I call it, it's not the golden years, it's the tarnished years. You can uh -huh. never get that shine right. So when you remarry, you need to consider that. Uh, and there's a lot, a lot of issues, so you just don't want to rush down the aisle. So it sounds like you, in your capacity, you serve not only as an attorney, but as really like a therapist and a counselor at the same time. Is that true? Yeah, that's a really, really good summation because, you know, I have seen it all. I have heard it all. Many times when I'm sitting behind my desk, you know, I'm wearing the lawyer hat, but I'm also wearing the social worker's hat. I'm giving advice, legal advice, uh, interpersonal advice, because People, when they come to an attorney, they're not happy to begin with because they have a problem. Usually they created the problem themselves. Now they have to pay me to get out of the problem. And I want to have a good result. I just don't want to take someone's money and then be, on, be done with them and on with the next case. I want to be able to say, I helped that person. I did something meaningful. So it's interesting when you're talking about walking down the aisle again. Wouldn't you give the same advice to someone who was walking down the aisle the first time? I'll bet you that a lot of people who get married their first time are only thinking about the flowers, the caterer, the honeymoon, the pictures. They're not thinking about what they should know about the other person and what they may be stepping into financially, I guess. Oh, absolutely. Of course, with the second marriage, they should have gained some experience to know what the pitfalls are. But I actually find people who are getting married for the first time, and at least from friends we know, kids are getting married a lot older than when we did. I mean, I was 22 when I got married. My kids were both in their uh, early 30s. So people are waiting longer and they're uh, acquiring assets. They're more financially set on their feet. I actually think they're a lot smarter than the people who have gotten divorced and now want to not run but rush down that aisle. That's interesting because you know the rap on millennials is that they're lazy, they only are interested in social media, blah, 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 and of course that they have such massive student debt that many of them feel that they'll never own a home, they'll never get married. Um, so you're, you're giving us a different perspective on them, which I like. Yours is a little more optimistic when you say they're older but wiser when they get married the first time. Yeah, they're not right out of college. They've been working. Uh, they are enjoying the fruits of their work. They're a lot in, more independent, 
and sometimes they become uh, too complacent and it's making it more difficult to find Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright. But I also think that they're not going through life with blinders on. They have an idea of what they want, and they'll take the time to find it. Okay. Whereas with second marriages, there's a stigma when you have children, uh, blended families, and things like that. That probably comes up as a very big issue. Now, if someone were to come to you and, and try to get prepared for a second marriage and uh, talk it out with you as far as advice, um, legally, maybe even a little bit of financial advice. If there were children of the of the the potential spouse who were not accepting of the new spouse at all, would you actually t tell them to reconsider getting married and not like rush down the aisle, like you say? How big a factor do you think that is? Oh, Eileen, I, I think it's a very very big factor because you know you marry the person, you marry their family. You know, things are not going to change. Um, I, I had a client who was in his 60s, and he had uh, two daughters, and they absolutely, absolutely hated his girlfriend. And he had such a wonderful relationship with his children, and it was just going to put a tremendous wedge. And I said, you know, forget about the money. You can't buy love from your daughters with the checkbook that you open up to give to them, you really need to consider all the consequences. And he looked at me and he was a little upset at first, but you know, three months later he called me up and says, I called it off. Wow. I felt good about it. I felt very good about that. And you know, because it's one thing to be subjective, but I can be unemotional, I can be detached. And I have been to second marriages, I can been been to weddings and we're all sitting in the aisles and we're all thinking the same thing what the hell is this guy doing what is she doing <laughs> so i guess you but i guess you never you never stood up when they asked the question if they still ask that question does anyone object <laughs> unfortunately they don't ask that question but i would have stood up many times <laughs> i think i think it's probably a good idea to put that question back in of course you I, know in soap operas someone always stands up but i always Anytime I'm at a wedding, I'm always waiting for that question to see what happens. So let's or go. Or someone walk through the back doors of the church or temple and just run up and said, stop, stop, right, stop. Right, stop. Or Elaine, Elaine from The Graduate exactly. or something like that, which right. which really uh, dates, dates me since that movie is from 1968. Okay, so you're going kind of from the sublime to the miserable, which would be the social security issue. Um, how... I guess it would be very difficult to fight Social Security on your own. So how do people come to you? How do they find you? And how do you evaluate whether you're going to be able to help them or not, or whether the problem is just too insurmountable? Many people are referred to us by doctors. Many people are referred to us by word of mouth or online searches. There's not a lot of attorneys in the United States, let alone California, that do Social Security disability appeals. One of the reasons why is because we only get paid if we're successful. If we take a case and it takes us two years and the government says, no, they're not uh, disabled, we don't get a penny. So that's one of the reasons why you don't find a lot of lawyers doing it. But as far as evaluating it, the person has to be um, disabled with an impairment that has lost, lasted a year or longer. He can't return to his previous work. And there's no transferable skills. 
So, for example, I had a doctor who was an orthopedic surgeon who was in a terrible car accident. To do surgery, he has to wear a lead vest, which is very heavy on his back, and he just couldn't carry that weight. He could not perform surgery anymore, and he applied for social security disability and was denied. He appealed it on his own. He was denied. He came to me, and I said, I'm sorry, I can't help you because you have transferable skills. You can sit at a desk, and you can review files to see if someone's disabled. You can work for an insurance company. Well, he didn't like what I had to say. Went to another friend of mine who told him the same thing. He ended up going to court on his own, and we heard that he lost. So it's not just the diagnosis. It's the impairment, how that impairment affects your daily life. If you're not able to function at home, you can't do housework, you can't cook, you can't drive, you can't go food shopping, then it's logical that you're not going to be able to concentrate at work and you know perform eight hours a day of uh, following instructions. So it's a very high bar the Social Security Disability Administration sets, but we, from our experience, know how to screen a case for people who are disabled who are not. I'll give you one more example. We had a client who was a bank branch manager she had breast cancer, double mastectomy. It um, metastasized to her lungs. Thank God she's in remission. She's been in remission for a while. And Social Security denied her saying she's in remission. The truth is from all the chemotherapy she had, she has what's called chemofog. She can't think, she can't concentrate, she can't follow instructions. How is she going to be able to function at work? We took her case, went to court, got her benefits. So um, is, is it like all insurance companies, their first... Um, their first action is always to deny, 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 or do you feel that starting out of the box, they try to be fair? What's your feeling? And it, does it depend on, like, how, where do the cases go? So your cases in California, do they go to a specific judge, or how does that work? Well, whether I file a case in New York or California or any state, Social Security is federal law, and it's a Social Security administration. So when you file... Most cases get denied because it's non-doctors making an evaluation, which forces the claimant to appeal the case. Usually it's the same result. It's when we take the case before a judge, a Social Security judge, who for the first time sees with his eyes and hears with his ears what the problem is that we have a much favorable rate of success. Uh, but it's a very, very bad system. And regardless who's sitting in the Oval Office, because I've been doing this 40 plus years, the system has gotten worse and worse and worse. In fact, so bad now that many, many Social Security judges have quit, retired or quit, because they do not like non-judges making you know, decisions for them. So it's a bad system and the waiting time is absolutely horrendous. The average case takes us two years and we have clients who end up losing their home, literally living in their cars or even worse, dying. And when they die, we get back benefits for the family. And I say to the government, see, I told you he was disabled. I mean, I say that sarcastically, but that's what the truth is. That's really so terrible to hear. So if, yeah. um, if you and the judges could make suggestions, what, how do you think, what would be like your first three priorities in getting the system fixed? Hiring more independent doctors to evaluate the medical cases. That's what you need. You can't have someone with a brain tumor, like, for example, what John McCain died of, and have the Social Security Administration say, you're not disabled. That's just absurd. My five-year-old grandchild would say, Papa, that person's disabled. 
So you need to have doctors, more doctors to evaluate, and you need to have specialists. You can't have a uh, pediatrician evaluate someone who has a heart problem. Uh, so that's, that's the first problem, hiring more doctors. And of course, you need to have more judges and have the judges be their own person and not have someone looking over their back and making decisions for them. And if you hire more people, cases would go faster because there wouldn't be such a terrible backlog that there is now. So um, how does one become a social security uh, judge in social security court, so to speak? And is it set up like a regular courtroom is? No, it's an administrative hearing, so there's no jury. It's a very, very small, in a sense, conference room. Uh, but to be a social security judge, you have to have, you know, X amount of years of experience, have had so many cases. And it's a federal appointment. So, you know, you have to be appointed by, uh, approved by Congress. Wow. I, I had no idea that any of this went on. And to tell you the truth, I hope that I never have to encounter <laughs> it. But at least I know who will be on my side if this should ever happen to me. I hope not. <laughs> but um, <laughs> let's, so let's go from there into your fiction. Um, so you've written, is it one or two novels now? Because I have the new one here. Uh, well, the you... new book is called In Defense of Guilt, but my first uh, novel was called Against My Will. And I noticed the will and the guilt in there. I think they're very cleverly titled. What was the first one about? Tell, Give us the plot of the first one. Yeah, Against My Will was loosely based on a client of mine who did uh, save many, many Jews during the Holocaust. Uh, Against My Will basically chased, uh, follows two lives. It's a grandmother who survived the Holocaust, and she kept a diary of everything that went on. And her granddaughter one day discovers her diary. And at the same time, she's in a very, very abusive marriage and uh, she's struggling to survive her marriage and extricate herself from the marriage and start her own independent life. And she goes on to become an attorney and defend someone in a very, very abusive relationship. So it's, uh, it's a fight for uh, independence, a fight for love, a fight against intolerance. And um, before, you before you published your novel, did you take any writing classes? Did you, who were your readers? Because that's a very big step. I mean, you said you prefer nonfiction to read and you are a successful attorney, but that doesn't necessarily translate into writing fiction. No, it absolutely does not. But over the years, I've always written a lot of dialogue, short stories, just for fun and always exchange it with friends of mine who, you know, were doing similar things like that. I would send it into some friends who were reviewers to critique it, to edit it. Um, so I, I, you know, I created my own style. I did take some community college classes on writing, but, you know, really not. Um, you know, from the time I was a little, little boy, I hate to admit it, but I spent my time doing my homework, sitting on my bed, watching TV, watching sitcoms and listening to dialogue. Probably the one fault I'm also often told is that my books are too dialogue intensive, but that's the way I see a story. I don't see a story of just a narrative. I see someone saying something and someone responding. So, you know, if anything, I like dialogue and it's a dialogue, you know, style that I have established. 
Well, um, you know they say show, don't tell. So I'm a big fan of books that are dialogue heavy because I think if you rely too much on description, it just, it doesn't hold your attention as much as like snappy repartee does, which yeah, there's a I... lot of in your second book, In Defense of Guilt, which is a courtroom drama that kind of demonstrates, I know you said that you loved Perry Mason and Della, Della Street and um, the whole drama of the courtroom, which is probably in part why you became a lawyer. Absolutely. I mean, I grew up watching those grainy uh, Perry Mason uh, shows and, uh, you know, that has carried me through, you know, my career. But uh, In Defense of Guilt, again, is loosely based on some characters, especially the judge especially the main character, Lauren Hill, because, you know, sitting in a courtroom and you don't have to be involved in the case, you're sitting and waiting to be called, you see this parade of attorneys and the judges that you appear before, and they all have unique personalities. They're all, you know, trying to position themselves, and you develop a sense of their personalities, even if you don't know someone. Like Lauren Hill, I, I, she's like 39 plus years old, and you walk. She walks to a court. She's drop dead gorgeous. Every head turns, and I knew someone. I know a lot of people like her, and she thinks that uh, you know she's the best because she's never lost a case. So she became the perfect character for in defense of guilt. And uh, I'm not going to do any spoilers, but uh, we we're close to wrapping up. But in defense of guilt, um, has is the first legal thriller I've ever read that involves directly or indirectly the seven deadly sins. Yeah. And uh, you know, my wife says, boy, that's really, you're taking a big leap on that one because, you know, a lot of radio and television interviews I've done, people feel that I have this, you know, strong religious conviction or maybe one day I was hit by an arrow and all of a sudden something <laughs> changed. And none of that is true. Absolutely none of that is true at all. It's just that I thought that the seven deadly sins would be a good play because every day we're being um, judged by you know a higher authority. And what better personality than a attorney who's trying to defend someone is now defending herself. It just seemed like the perfect storm. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, it, it is kind of like a wrap, the plot is like wrapped up in layers. And I enjoyed reading it and I'll uh, recommend it to our viewers and be showing them a picture of the cover. So um, Ben Berkeley from my youth, I was, I was <laughs> so much enjoyed uh, talking to you again and bringing you onto the show. And uh, hopefully you. you'll join us again with your next book. Um, Absolutely. Thanks, Ben, from California and Bookstew viewers. Um, I'm, I think you'd really enjoy Ben's novel, In Defense of Guilt, and I hope you've taken some uh, helpful advice and will get a hold of him if you need a good lawyer, especially for Social Security Disability. Um, so that's it for today. Bookstew viewers, have a great day, and thank you.